This salsa's made New York City. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans. We're three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State, share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He's a maverick performer who made a name for himself by questioning everything about his profession. He's a stand-up comedian turned movie star turned banjo aficionado that now spends most of his time writing. We're talking about comedy legend and technically Texan, Steve Martin. But first, what's your favorite Texan comedy routine? I'm just going to jump in here. and You know, I kind of, there's a lot of them. But uh, he's a Texan comic and I'm still a big fan. Uh, the late, great Bill Hicks. And he had a whole bit about celebrity endorsements and how, you know, once you're a celebrity and you start doing endorsements, we need to just vote you off the island. Um, you're off the boat. Except for what Orange drink. Yeah, orange drink. <laughs> orange drink. <laughs> it's a whole bit and it's great and Google it. But then he turns to, he's like, except for Willie Nelson. Because he's like, ooh, I'm hurting. And eat Doritos. <laughs> Because he was, uh, this was not long after a lot of his IRS troubles. Uh, so, go, so go back and listen to those uh, classic Willie Nelson episodes. He said Willie Nelson owes fifteen million dollars to the government. <laughs> it's a pass. It gets a pass. I love that. Uh, my, mine is. Uh, I, I, there's a lot to pick from, but I'm going to have to go with the the Pace Picani commercials starring uh, Burton Gilliam. This salsa's made New York City. New, New York, York City. City. <laughs> Get a rope. Get a rope. Yeah, that's definitely a classic and yeah, um, uh, good a classic Texan product. Yeah, yeah. Burton Gilliam is is a Texas treasure, and and it, you just have to watch Blazing Saddles to see that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm always. I, I'm sure we talked about it before when we discussed Whataburger, but I'll always have a special place in my heart for the Mel Tillis Whataburger commercials. There's just something about that, uh, you know, his stuttering, bumbling routine, and then you know, Whataburger. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, can't beat can't beat those commercials. I uh, I had a nickel when I come in here. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Glenn Martin was born August fourteenth, nineteen forty-five, in Waco, Texas. His father, Glenn Vernon Martin, was a real estate salesman who was also an aspiring actor. Steve and his family moved to California when he was just 10 years old, first to the town of Inglewood and later to Garden Grove. Martin's father was an inspiration to his son when it came to performing. One of his earliest memories was seeing his father as an extra serving drinks on stage at the Callboard Theater at Melrose Place. Glenn also appeared in a production of Our Town with Raymond Massey while in the UK during World War II. But like so many other fathers, Glenn Martin expressed his affection to his son through gifts while being stern and closed off emotionally. Now, while he was proud of his son's accomplishments, uh, Glenn was also critical. And Steve Martin later recalled that most of his feelings for his father in his teen years were filled with hatred. Martin's first job was selling guidebooks at Disneyland part-time on weekends and full-time during school breaks. The Main Street Magic Shop fascinated him, and he spent his break time there to watch the demonstrations to customers, learning all the tricks. By 1960, he'd mastered several of the tricks and illusions and ended up taking a paying job at the Magic Shop in Fantasyland. 
While there, he perfected his talents for juggling, magic, and creating balloon animals, frequently performing for tips. A side effect of this job turned out to be his first actual film appearance. He was caught in the background of a home movie that ended up being turned into the short subject film Disneyland Dream. After graduating high school, Martin went to Santa Ana College taking drama and poetry classes. He also teamed up with a classmate to perform in productions at the Birdcage Theater. Continuing his trend of theme park jobs, Martin joined a comedy troupe at Knott's Berry Farm, where he soon met an aspiring actress named Stormy Shirk. The two began a comedy partnership that eventually became a romantic one. This relationship would change the course of his life as Shirk convinced Martin to enroll as a philosophy major at California State University, Long Beach. Shirk enrolled at UCLA, which was just an hour away, but this distance eventually caused them to drift apart. While in school, Martin considered becoming a philosophy professor rather than a comedian, but his college experience had a big impact on his future and the way he thought about comedy. In his words, he said, It changed what I believe and what I think about everything. I majored in philosophy. Something about non-sequiturs appealed to me. In philosophy, I started studying logic. And they were talking about cause and effect. And you start to realize, hey, there is no, hey, there's no cause and effect. There's no logic. There's no anything. Then it gets real easy to write this stuff because all you have to do is twist everything hard. You twist the punchline. You twist the non-sequitur so hard away from the things that set it up. In fact, a treatise Martin wrote on the subject made him think, quote, What if there were no punchlines? What if there were no indicators? What if I created tension and never released it? What if I headed for a climax, but all I delivered was an anticlimax? What would the audience do with all that tension? Theoretically, it would have to come out sometime. But if I kept denying them the formality of a punchline, the audience would eventually pick their own place to laugh, essentially out of desperation. And this thinking is kind of the foundation of his entire stand-up routine. In 1967, Martin transferred to UCLA and changed his major to theater. He began performing at local clubs at night to mixed reviews and also showed up as a contestant on an episode of The Dating Game. He dropped out of college at the age of 21 to pursue his career in comedy, which turned out to be a good choice. Within a year, Nina Goldblatt, who was a dancer on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and a former girlfriend, helped him to get a job on the show by submitting his work to the writing team. The head writer, Mason Williams, was so impressed by Martin's work that he initially paid him out of his own pocket. In 1969, at the tender age of 23, Steve Martin and the other writers won an Emmy. He was a prolific comedy writer, contributing to The John Denver Show, The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, and The Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. This led to Martin's on-screen TV debut on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour while he was still a writer on the show. His next appearance was on the Virginia Graham Show in 1970. He wasn't pleased with that performance. He said, I looked grotesque. I had a hairdo like a helmet, which I blow-dried to a poofy bouffant for reasons I no longer understand. I wore a frock coat and a silk shirt, and my delivery was mannered, slow, and self-aware. I had absolutely no authority. After reviewing the show, I was depressed for a week. During this time, Martin opened as a comedian for musical groups like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, the Carpenters, and even Toto. He also appeared at San Francisco's The Boarding House and other venues while he continued to write. He won a second Emmy nomination, this time for Dick Van Dyke and Company in 1976. In the mid-1970s, Martin made frequent stand-up appearances on The Tonight Show, The Gong Show, The Muppet Show, and, of course, Saturday Night Live. 
Viewership of SNL jumped by a million viewers when he made his guest appearance, and he was one of the show's most successful hosts. He has appeared on the show 27 times and guest hosted for 15, making him only second to the great Alec Baldwin in total number of host appearances. Martin became close friends with many of the cast members of SNL, including Gilda Radner. On the night of Gilda Radner's death from ovarian cancer on May 20th, 1989, Martin hosted a very emotionally charged show, which included footage of the two of them from a 1978 sketch where they performed a sometimes comic but still deeply touching dance routine. And I remember I saw that I was watching that episode as it happened. So deeply, very, very emotional time. Martin's appearances on Saturday Night Live and his hit comedy albums in the 70s, both of which sold over a million copies, had a noticeable impact on popular culture. He popularized the use of air quotes on the show and the phrase, excuse me, from his album, Let's Get Small, became a national catchphrase, as did just a wild and crazy guy from his album, A Wild and Crazy Guy. This phrase and the album were based on his character from Saturday Night Live sketches, where he and Dan Aykroyd played the Fastrunk Brothers, a couple of club-going, vaguely Eastern European immigrants. Both albums won Grammys for Best Comedy Recording. We are two swinging Czechoslovakian dudes, aren't we? (laughs) We are going to go look for some American ladies to swing with. Oh my gosh, yes. A Wild and Crazy Guy ends with the song King Tut, which was written and sung by Steve Martin and backed by the Toot Uncommons, a band made of members of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. The song was later released as a single and reached number 17 on the U.S. charts and sold a million copies by 1978. He famously performed the song live on a beloved episode of SNL in 1978. Martin's comedy was self-referential and self-mocking, and it mixed philosophical riffs, sudden spurts of happy feet, banjo playing, balloon depictions of venereal diseases, and kitten juggling, among many other gags. It was very non—it was non-sequitur. It was one thing, one thing careening off the other. He mocked his chosen profession even while engaging in it, as the opening of his A Wild and Crazy Guy act demonstrated. I think there's nothing better for a person to come up and do the same thing over and over for two weeks. This is what I enjoy, so I'm going to do the same thing over and over and over. I'm going to do the same joke over and over in the same show. It'll be like a new thing. Or by opening with, hello, I'm Steve Martin, and I'll be out here in a minute. Martin's success soon drew crowds that required full-size stadiums to contain. He was worried that these larger venues were so big that not everyone in the crowd would be able to see him, so he began wearing a white three-piece suit to stand out on stage. This suit went on to become one of his trademarks. In 1981, and what could easily be called the height of his stand-up career, Steve Martin abruptly quit. He said, My act was conceptual, and once the concept was stated and everybody understood it, it was done. It was about coming to the end of the road. There was no way to live on in that persona. I had to take that fabulous luck of not being remembered as that exclusively. You know, I didn't announce that I was stopping. I just stopped. In fact, Martin considered his stand-up success just an accident, as he'd always been focused on being an actor in film. He'd appeared in a small role in a 1972 film named Another Fine Mess, but his first substantial role was a short film that he wrote called The Absent-Minded Waiter, which was in 1977. The film also featured Buck Henry and Terry Garr, and it was nominated for an Oscar. 
Martin's first appearance in a major film came in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, where he sang the Beatles song, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. His first big success in a starring role was 1979's The Jerk, which he co-wrote with Michael Elias and Carl Gottlieb. This was directed by a famous comedian and director, Carl Reiner. It grossed over $100 million at the box office. Martin went on a streak after The Jerk, starring in three more Carl Reiner movies, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man with Two Brains, and All of Me, which was his most critically acclaimed performance up to that point. I almost uh, rewrote this script to start with. He was born a poor black child. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't. Someone's trying to kill these cans! Martin's career had a setback when he starred in Pennies from Heaven, which was an attempt to avoid being typecast. He'd worked hard on that role, taking acting lessons from director Herbert Ross and spending months learning how to tap dance. Despite the hard work, the film was a failure. Quote, I don't know what to blame other than it's me and not a comedy, Martin said of the film. And, and that's a good movie, too. He, it's it's a throwback film, kind of a film noir type musical. Yeah, it's very, very good movie. But oh, well, Hollywood. What, do you, what can you say? In 1986, he starred with Martin Short and Chevy Chase in the legendary film The Three Amigos, which he co-wrote the script for. Uh, and I think we all love that movie, directed oh by gosh. John Landis. It's, it's been for <laughs> our childhood. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Hold he also... Hold up your hat! <laughs> gonna make it, gonna make it. <laughs> not gonna make it, not gonna make it. Look at me, look at me, look at me. (laughs) Look up here, look up here. Great, great movie. Uh, If you haven't seen this movie, this is probably the best version of the Seven Samurai story arc. Keep in mind, we're also 11 years old when it came out. So it was really in our (laughs) wheelhouse. Yeah, we were 11. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's still great. Uh, Well, at any rate, around the same time, he also starred in the musical Little Shop of Horrors, where he teamed up with his longtime friend Rick Moranis. Uh, He played a uh, very murderous dentist. (laughs) It's a crazy movie. Uh, Then he also starred in one of his most popular films uh, with John Candy, the John Hughes movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And that's a really, really good, uh, very funny movie, but also a very touching movie in a lot of ways. He was in the film Roxanne, which is a film adaptation of Cyrano de de Bergiac, and that was kind of a passion piece for him. And then he wrote... uh, his and actually his writing on that script earned him a Writers Guild of America award, and he got a lot of uh, respect from Hollywood as more than just a comedian. You know, I like that movie simply for the sword fight with tennis rackets. Yes. Yeah. 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 Quirky little film. Yeah. Now, throughout the 1980s and 90s, Martin starred in a long string of comedies, both on film and on stage, including Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Ron Howard's Parenthood, his own movie L.A. Story, a Lincoln Center revival of Waiting for Godot with Robin Williams and Bill Irwin. That's Mr. Noodle to you uh, parents that have children that watch Sesame Street. And the popular remake of Father of the Bride. He also starred in dramas including Lawrence Kasdan's Grand Canyon. I love that movie. It's a great film. A Simple Twist of Fate and The Spanish Prisoner, uh, a David Mamet film in which he actually plays the, the, the villain in that. Martin continued his run of successful films in the new millennium and was ranked number four on the box office stars list by 2003. 
Now, this ranking was due, at least in part, to the success of Bringing Down the House and Cheaper by the Dozen, both of which earned over $130 million in the U.S. for being easy-to-watch <laughs> films that say nothing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't he, realize they both earned over $130 million. <laughs> yes. Well, wow. thanks, American viewers. <laughs> he wrote and starred in Shop Girl, a film based on a novella he had written. After a sequel to Cheaper by the Dozen, Cheaper-er by the Dozener-er, <laughs> he starred as Inspector Clouseau in The Pink Panther and its sequel. Those two films combined opened over $230 million at the box office. And they were worse than the previous two films that we just yeah. talked about. I'm not a professional film critic, hey, but uh, I'm going to push how, this fart button here on my soundboard. We're, we're talking about his star power. <laughs> I yeah, know. star okay. power. That's no, true. No, no, I understand. What's not, uh, they, not... They, can't, they can't all be my blue heaven. Oh, no. my God. I could talk about that movie and all of me forever. Despite his history of popular starring and strong supporting roles, The Guardian listed him as one of the best actors that never received an Oscar nomination for acting. Now, this all changed in 2013 when he received an honorary Oscar. Perhaps it should be little surprise that a man who dominated stand-up comedy for years and gave it abruptly would nearly basically do the same thing with his successful acting career. In the early 2000s, he stepped back and began his career again this time as a bluegrass musician. He had picked up the banjo when he was 17, and he'd even developed a clever method for developing his picking skills. And when he was younger, he put on a 33 RPM bluegrass record and would play it at 16 RPMs and then tune down his banjo to match the note as they sounded at that speed until he worked out the tunes. Mike, I'm sure you know what he's talking about. What I'm talking about here. I don't really know. I do. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. I know. You have you take a fast, fast music. Yeah. You play it slower, and when you play sound slower, it gets lower pitched. So yes. he right. tune his banjo to match those lower notes. Yeah, yeah. right. So then you can learn how to play it fast. <clears throat> he also was a further uh, tutored in his musical education by Nitty Gritty Dirt band member John McEwen, which is they were a popular pop band in the 70s who had a lot of uh oh just grass just go look in your grandpa's album collection (laughs) your parents (laughs) parents your parents probably have one there are some youngsters out there yeah now martin played the banjo off and on during his stand-up career even poking fun at his love for the instrument during his shows that self-deprecation didn't stop him from including a instrumental song on one of his comedy albums and performing it on tour A hint of things that would come decades later was when one side of his final comedy album, The Steve Martin Brothers, was entirely live recordings of Martin playing banjo with the Bluegrass Band. In 2002, Martin added to his pile of awards by winning Best Country Instrumental Performance at the Grammy Awards for his performance on Earl Scruggs' 2001 remake of The Foggy Mountain Breakdown. In 2009, Martin released his first all-music album, The Crow, New Songs for the Five-String Banjo. The album won him another Grammy, this time for Best Bluegrass Album. And this album featured his old friend and his mentor, John McEwen, who produced this album. 2009 turned out to be a busy banjo year for Steve Martin. He made his first appearance at the Grand Ole Opry, appeared on the American Idol Season 8 finale, and went on a two-month tour with the Steep Canyon Rangers after playing alongside them on A Prairie Home Companion. He continued appearing with the Steep Canyon Rangers through 2010, performing at such venues as the New Orleans Jazz Fest, Merle Fest Bluegrass Festival, 
Bonnaroo, the Romp Bluegrass Festival, and the Red Butte Garden Concert Series on the BBC's Later with Jules Holland. And if you haven't heard the Steep Mountain Rangers, you need to go check them out. They are phenomenal. Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers performed Jubilation Day on the Colbert Report, Conan, and the BBC's The One Show from March of, to July of 2011. That same year, he performed three songs, including one he wrote at the Capitol Force Celebration for the 4th of July in front of the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. He also narrated and appeared in the PBS documentary about the history of the banjo in America called Give Me the Banjo. Martin doesn't just like to play banjo. He loves bluegrass music. In 2010, he established the Steve Martin Prize for Excellence in Banjo and Bluegrass, which was created to reward artistry in bluegrass and bl- and bring its recipient more visibility and bring more visibility to the genre as a whole. The prize includes $50,000 in cash, a bronze sculpture, and a chance to perform with Steve Martin on stage. And I imagine if you're a professional banjo player, $50,000 in cash is very nice. To buy a nice banjo for that amount of money. You, you probably could buy a nice banjo. In 2013, Martin collaborated on the album... Love Has Come For You with musician Edie Burkell of Edie Burkell and the New Bohemians fame. Fellow Texan. Yep. He added to his collection of awards with the title track from that album by winning the Grammy for Best American Roots Song. Steve and Edie teamed up again for a second album in 2015 called So Familiar. This duo continued working together and they wrote a musical called Bright Star, which debuted on Broadway in 2016. And I believe it was nominated for a Tony, so it didn't win. But if he keeps working in Broadway, he could get that EGOT. 35 years after his last stand-up performance, Steve Martin returned to the stage. He opened for Jerry Seinfeld in 2016 in a brief 10-minute performance. Later that year, he went on a national tour with Martin Short and the Steep Canyon Rangers, which also bore fruit as a Netflix comedy special, Steve Martin and Martin Short, an evening you will forget for the rest of your life. Which is hilarious. They are, they are magic together. Well, in summary, Steve Martin is a man who can seem to do no wrong. He has excelled at every career he's turned his mind to pursuing. He revolutionized stand-up comedy, became a top-drawing box office star, and he abandoned both to become a world-class ambassador for banjo and bluegrass. At every turn, he's, war- he's earned award after award, and the whole time, he quietly conducted a writing career that would make many green with envy. He's written several novels and several novellas and stories, uh, and he's also had time to raise a family. Now, throughout his many career changes, Martin also demonstrates the classic reinvention of self for which Texans have become known and revered. Oh, that's a nice story. Yeah. When did he die? He's still alive. He's he's (laughs) another national treasure. No, you know, what's really interesting to me is is that, you know, oh, well, he was a little bit Texan. It's like you're here till you're 10. So, you know, you're kind of steeped in it. And you're in Waco. So that's a, you know, there's a lot of interesting history and things that happen in Waco between... Mm-hmm. Forty-five and fifty-five. So I mean, he had a he had a good run of uh, Texas youth. So it's probably something you know. I moved around a lot as a kid, and I can tell you that like that period up until you're ten, you know, I, I mean, that's when when I moved away from Corpus and in a very warm place in my heart for that that time in Texas and that specific place. So I'm sure that it it is something to him. 
I got to I got to yeah. say one quick thing close to the end there. <clears throat> the Stephen Edie thing. I I can't help but think of Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. It was yeah. a very famous group. Like there were this famous duo that did stuff like in the seventies and husband and wife. I mean, team. they've been yeah, yeah, they've been around forever. They were, I mean, the they fifth, were part of Frank's. Yeah, they were part of that Frank circle there. So, <clears throat> but they were hanging around all through the seventies and eighties too. So he's still showing up on, you know, Johnny Carson and things like that. So, just made me laugh. It's like Stephen Edie. It's like this, they're yeah. different Stephen Edie. Uh, I recently watched uh, CNN has been running their history of comedy uh, documentary series, which is produced by Tom Hanks and Werner Hartzog. And uh, they've they've been extensively Steve Martin and Martin Short together have been extensively interviewed uh, uh, on different different subjects that the that the episodes are covering. And uh, they're they're just they're very hilarious because even though they're just talking naturally about subjects, they're, they're often contradicting each other and yeah. these, these very dry cuts at each other. <laughs> it's very funny. But it's pretty amazing. I mean, when you think about it, the, the, the documentary series ta- talked about, uh, there was an episode on Gone Too Soon and it was about uh, people who've died, com- comedians who died too early. And But then they also had a quick segment on you know, the three comedians who were considered revolutionary and one of some of the greatest stand-up comics of all time who just walked away from the profession. And one of them was Woody Allen. One of them was Eddie Murphy and one of them was Steve Martin. And, you know, Steve Martin was literally at the top of, he, he was at the top of his game. He was selling out, he was selling out arenas. He was uh, selling million copy albums and just stopped and never, and it took him 35 years to go back to even, want to go back yeah well yeah i mean and that's one of the things that's always struck me about steve martin and uh it made sense once i you know read about his uh education and his background of philosophy and stuff is that he he was always wacky and zany and you know just goofy on stage but underneath all that is a very thoughtful approach to what he Mm -hmm. was doing i mean he wasn't just out there being random, he was he was thoughtfully approaching the the form, and that's one of the reasons I think he was so successful. Is that underneath all of that, you know, zaniness that seemed to be very uh, random and unplanned, um, he was actually you know approaching it um, in a very cerebral way. Right. Yeah, and he's he said that uh, I've seen him speak, and he said that. You know, the reason he walked away from each of these things is not because of anything bad. It's just he he did and said the things that he wanted to do. He accomplished what he wanted to do. And when it was when it was no longer getting anything out of it or, or enjoying it or um, um, seeing a seeing growth from himself in those things, then he moved on to something else. And that's so that's why he he walked away from filmmaking is from making movies is it was not giving him any pleasure and interest and value anymore. So, you know, then he moved on to the banjo and now, you know, coming back to just doing the, the comedy stuff through the banjo, combining that, that's where he's starting to see again, value in, in returning to some of his earlier efforts. But I mean, you, when we were, when we were, six seven eight years old i mean i guarantee you all three of us probably were very familiar with the king tut song and king tut king and, and, tut, tut yeah tut, and, tut, tut. Mm-hmm. and have an indelible image of him with the with the white suit the banjo and the 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 arrow uh little arrow hat that he wore with the arrow yeah. to his head. <laughs> you know that's 
you know, that, that was everybody had that album on, in, in their in their their bureau, you know, to put on the the the, the phonograph machine. So, and I always thought he was part of the Saturday Night Live cast. It took me, I mean, it was much later in, you know, in my teen years in doing, you know, reading more about Saturday Night Live that I realized he was not actually part of the cast. He was just a regular guest. Yeah, that's, that's the thing is like, he's, he's not a primetime player. He's, he's a host. No. Yeah, he's a host. Guest visitor person. Yeah, but he was such, I mean, there's, I guess it's the, the, really it's the first drunk brothers that. That really, you know, he, he's he's probably one of the first celebrities or the guests that really had a recurring feature character, I guess you would say, like a like a breakout character from the show. Well, that's what you want to be, right? Then you get your own spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, listen, I mean, we could sit here like... Um, Something like Dirty Rotten Scout. I mean, like, like just real quick, let's go around the horn. Like, you know, what are some of the the Steve Martin performances that jump out? I mean, I'm going to, I'll throw one out. Let's see. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I think, is a brilliant, <laughs> that's amazing. brilliant performance. I'm Rupert. not sure they could make that movie today, but that's, uh, that's a, it's great with him and Michael Caine. And that's a, just a wonderful pairing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that movie, too, is very much a, uh, I don't know, reminded me of a, a more classic film from the, the early days of cinema like from it, the well, 40s it is. or it's, something I think it feels it like it feels a, like a oh is it a remake it's okay. a remake of a, of a french film i think yeah okay so it's but a it, new it, film it, it, for americans because it, that's all it always counts. yeah i mean it always feels a lot to me like a you know like one of the bob hope road movie type deals yeah yeah you know, it's like oh, yeah. it's a caper and it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek and and you know over the top sort of deal fun movie um, for me, that's always going to be uh, the jerk. I mean, <laughs> there's just so many classic things from that from that movie, and uh, it's it's obvious how he became a star based on that. Uh, I mean, for me, it would be I, I I just love my blue heaven. It's it's a. Do you have any? What, where's the arugula? What's arugula? arugula. It's a vegetable. <laughs> Him playing a mobster, it, 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 horribly overplaying a mobster is is just phenomenal. This is Barney Cooper Smith. He invented the rotary engine. I thought Wankel invented the rotary engine. You know, it's, it's <laughs> just there's so many great lines from that movie. And then Three Amigos. I I I just love that period of John Landis's surreal farce movies, and it, it just. It's like living with a six-year-old. Ah, oh, yeah. so funny. It's, I mean, like, so uh, funny. Yeah, no, there's, there's some funny, funny bits, but I mean, he had some great dramatic turns too. I mean, yeah, Parenthood's like, great movie. Parenthood's a wonderful movie. Is a deeply wonderful, moving film. Um, I think, I think Grand Canyon is like a very, it's a completely straight turn in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, uh, he, you know, just like his character just absolutely, uh, goes through this horrible trauma. And then you think like he's going to emotionally pivot and it turns out, nope, he doesn't. And it's shocking to watch that. Uh, and LA story is a very good movie too. <laughs> LA story. The problem with LA story is when I watched it, when I remember being like, Ooh, a Steve Martin comedy. And I watched it when I was too young. Cause it was like, I didn't get, I was from, you know, 
Hicktown, Texas. So I didn't get any of like the L.A. references because all I know about L.A. is what I learned from movies. So it was a bit like too local in local jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love there's a movie. There's a couple of movies that I really like. I actually like Father of the Bride, the first one. I think it's a very, I mean, it's a very good remake. It's just a very good performance. And he, he plays the Spencer Tracy character and he does so well with that because he's, he is very approachable, unlikable as a, as a father type figure. And he has the same, similar, similar tone and character in planes, trains and automobiles. It's just, he's got that tone of voice and that, and, and parenthood too. And, and it's, he, that's a, just a really sweet movie. Um, another movie that's very, very, that's very strange, but I think I just really loved it when I was younger. Mixed nuts where, Oh yeah. That's yeah, that Christmas yeah, movie. I forgot about that one. Yeah. It's a Christmas a movie. It's Adam Sandler's first real movie. He was a supporting character in it. Um, he, Phil, he plays a, a, a Steve Martin plays like a therapist of this group of crazy people that are just swirling around him. He kind of plays the straight role, the exasperated straight role. But unfortunately, if you're a fan of Ray Donovan, don't ever watch Mixed Nuts because Liev Scribner, I will never, ever, ever see him as anything other. Schreiber. Liev Schreiber. Liev Schreiber, I will never see him as anything other than the cross dresser <laughs> in the. In the uh, the Louis Brooks wig that he plays in this movie. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he uh, he just, he's, I mean, you know, there's just so many magic moments that uh, you can rehash. He's got a great catalog, so it's uh, worth the trip down the IMDb hole, for sure, for sure. And he, and he still plays some small character parts, too. I mean, he's done some voices and a few little things, but, uh, but for the most part, he's, uh, He's out of acting, which is fine. Yep, but he's a very talented writer. Um, you know, mostly he's got bluegrass, and he's been writing uh, stage plays for the most part lately. Um, very, very talented guy, and I will happily claim him as a Texan. Me too. Well, there you go. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. A big thank you to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press, and you can find his fiction work at BlackguardPress.com. Now, you love comedies, you love dramas, but most importantly, you love Texas and our amazing history. Tell your friends about what we're doing, go out, help them to subscribe, and get out there and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash Texas Podcast, where you too can become a come and ticket Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.